welcome to Writer's Voices with Monica and Caroline. I'm your host, Monica Hadley, and with me is my co-host and mother, Caroline Kilborn. Hi, Mom. Hello, everybody. <laughs> Hi. Hope you're having a nice day. Yeah, I hope so, too. I hope so, too. Can you tell us about the book we're going to be talking about today and the author we're going to be talking to? Well, I'll tell you, there's an awful lot to this book, and it, it's fantastic. The book is Making Art in Prison, Survival and Resistance, and the author is Janie Paul, and many, it, it's just, uh, every page I turn, I think, oh my gosh, and the next page is even better, and the next page is even better, so I'm just delighted to be able to do, to be able to talk about this book. I, yes, I agree. Um, we were sharing one, one physical copy of the book, and then I also had a copy on my computer, but the physical copy is just so beautiful. Mm -hmm. I know, it is. So, welcome to Writer's Voices, Janie. Thank you. Pleased to be here. (laughs) So, give us a little background of, um, how you came to write this book, Making Art in Prison. Sure. Glad to. So let's see. It starts way back in 19, in the early 1990s. Um, I moved to Michigan from New York City in 1996. I'm a visual artist and had been being an artist and teaching in New York City. And I had met a man at the Blue Mountain Center, which is an artist residency in, um, in the Adirondacks, Buzz Alexander, who was a professor in the English department here at the University of Michigan. And he had begun doing arts workshops in prisons in the area here in Michigan, primarily theater and writing. Well, we met and we became soulmates and I decided I wanted to move to Michigan to be with him. And just previous to meeting him, the year before, I had become, I had been a guest artist at an arts workshop in South Africa. And it was the first arts, multi-ethnic, um, multi-racial arts workshop in, in South Africa. It had been going on for, for many years. And in South Africa, I became very aware of racism and apartheid. So that sharpened my view when I came back to the United States on institutionalized, what everyone is calling now systemic racism, which comes up um, at, at the heart of it is our prison system, we, because we incarcerate so many people of color disproportionately. So I met, I, I actually had the thought when I met, previous to meeting Buzz, that I wanted to do some kind of work in prisons. I had spent most of my adult life teaching art to marginalized people, people who didn't have access to the arts, children and adults. Well, Buzz was doing this, and so I was very excited, and I moved to Michigan, and he had just founded the Prison Creative Arts Project, which is a project at the University of Michigan that sends um, faculty and students into prisons to do arts workshops. So I came to Michigan. Buzz had a very good eye for art, but he, you know, he wasn't an artist. He's a writer. And he said, okay, you're here. You're a visual artist. Let's organize a show, an exhibit of art for Michigan prisons. So we did. And it was an amazing experience. We just went to prisons locally. We made contacts with uh, prison officials. 
um, to get permission. And we went in and we met with the artists and we were kind of mind blown at the talent that we saw. And we organized an exhibit and it was very successful here. People loved it. And so we decided to do it again. And then it became the annual exhibition of art artists in Michigan prisons. And now we're in our 27th, we're going into our 28th year. So (laughs) this exhibition has become a major phenomenon in the state prison system and in our community here and is well known around the country Um, because it's not only an exhibit, but it's also a pedagogical project where we are, one of our goals is to really support the growth personal and artistic growth of incarcerated artists. And the other goal is to bring the work out into the world so that we humanize incarcerated people for people who come to the exhibit and they start to say, wow, this is amazing. These are so talented. These people are so talented. Who are these people that are in prison? And we can start dialogues and conversations about why the United States is the most incarcerated country in the world and what can we do about it and what should we mm-hmm. be doing about it. So um, I guess about 12 or year, years or so after we started doing this, I started thinking about writing about this whole experience, <clears throat> but I knew it would take over my life because it would be such a big yeah. part of it. And then finally in 2013-14, I was awarded a fellowship at the University of Michigan's Institute for the Humanities, which means you get a whole year to in an office downtown to just do a project. And the project I proposed <laughs> was this book. So I started the project then, and I started I – started really with the question of why is this work so intense? What does it mean for people in prison, living in prison, to be making art? So Mm -hmm. I started that first year by interviewing um, artists and looking at thousands of images and and and, and just thinking. So that's, that's the origin story of the book. And it took me basically 10 years to write it because now it's being published 10 years later. Oh, well, congratulations. Thank you. I'm very thrilled. Was it hard to find a publisher? It was. Yeah. It's not a common, I mean, it, in a sense, it's a coffee table book because yes, it is. it's full of beautiful pictures, yes. but it's also a very serious subject. Yes. So that's a kind of challenging combination. Yes, and it was challenging um, to find a publisher because most publishing companies, and I tried both trade books, publishers, and university presses, and for them it didn't fall into a nicely defined category. It wasn't just an art book, as Uh you say. It wasn't an academic it wasn't written in an academic form or style. So it's a little bit of a hybrid because, as you know from reading it, there's autobiographical material, there's first-person stories of the artist, there's my reflections and my theories. So 
people, it just didn't fit into people's categories. No. As they say, where is it going on the shelf? They couldn't figure it out. Well, it didn't fit into people's categories because it surpasses the categories. Thank you. I think so. Too. Yeah, absolutely. Before we get get too much further into it, I wanted to share with you, and I will, for people listening on the radio, you're not going to be able to see this, but I will post pictures on um, at writersvoices.com. I have a friend who is serving a life sentence in prison that I met mm-hmm. through a Toastmasters club that we sponsored in the prison 20 mm-hmm. some years ago. And he is an artist in, an, so this is an Iowa prison. And I don't, mm-hmm. we don't ha- have a program like this in the Iowa prisons, mm-hmm. or at least not that he's aware of. So he works with, you know. Here's, oh, beautiful. Yeah. yeah. And it's just pencil and marker. That's all wow. he has. Yeah. yeah. So creating art is so important to these inmates. It's such a, you know, talk a little bit about that, about the, about why it's so important to them. Yeah. This is very important to me because a lot of people will say something like, oh, they have so much time. This is a nice hobby for them. But it's much more than that. Oh, oh much more. Yeah. What I've yeah. come to see is that it's um, a way of creating meaning and purpose for people who are locked up, either for five years or for a life sentence or anywhere in between. Um, you know, the future is very dreadful in prison if you've got a long sentence, particularly. But if you're making art, there's always possibility for the future. There's, in the work that you're making right there, you create a sphere of liberty in which you can make choices. And then one work will lead to another. And you can foresee productivity and meaning going into your future. Um, And the very act of making a painting or drawing or a sculpture involves so much freedom. So that's where I got the title Survival and Resistance. The resistance, there are many forms of resistance. But it's it's resistance to a place where you're treated like an object to be moved around and um, you don't have, a, you know, you're not referred to by your name, you're referred to by your number. So it's a way the resistance is that you're cre- you're delving into your identity, your uniqueness. And you're creating work that might be beautiful, it might come from anger, it might be weird, it might be frightening. You know, there's so many possible um, avenues for expression, but you get to do it. And by and large, prison officials are quite happy to have people making art because they know that artists don't create trouble. For the most part, artists just yeah. want to do their work. And so mm-hmm. it's a safe haven in a sense. Well, it's a safe haven in a deep way for the artists, but also the 
the prison staff, if they don't understand the deeper meaning, uh, which they may not, at least they understand that this is this is something that's good for them and it's good for the whole environment. And a lot of times staff members who, you know, may not come from the most artistic of environments themselves, may not have a lot of exposure to art, um, also really like the work that they see. They like the art. They do. And they, (laughs) in Michigan, they, you know, we are allowed, incarcerated people are allowed to sell their work here in Michigan, which isn't true in all states. But they buy, they buy work from um, artists. They admire it. When we do our selection visits and we meet with the artists, you know, staff members will come in and they'll walk around and, and they may even have like an artist that they kind of have encouraged and they're glad to see what they've done. And, you know, they, they will, you know, I hear this so often, they'll say, you know, it's too bad that you, you know, had to come to prison to discover you were an artist or, you know, or I'm just so glad that you're doing this now. Yeah. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You're listening to Writer's Voices, and our guest today is Janie Paul, author of Making Art in Prison, Survival and Resistance. I'm just overwhelmed by the by the, the beauty of this, the beauty of the whole program, that mm-hmm. uh, and and the response of the of the inmates. And I can understand I can understand that, um, though I've never had to be in prison. I can only can only imagine what it's like. But they have a purpose now, and it. You know, and so like like she said, it, it does keep him out of trouble, and and to me that's a that's a really big plus because mm-hmm. uh, there there's so much possibility for getting into trouble in prison with you know because nobody's happy there, and right. when it, when everybody's unhappy, you're going to have trouble. Right. But if there are some some people that are happy a little bit, that's a big plus. It really is. Yes, it is. Um... Artists discover something that's more important to them than whether somebody bumped into them in the chow line or, you know, one of the artists in the book and his story, he says, I just keep to myself. I do my art. Somebody got into a fight because another guy stole his television. And I told him, don't get Mm -hmm. into a fight. Just do whatever you need to do. You know, don't just do your work. Do what's important. The first time that you went into a prison to mm-hmm. meet with the artists, was it intimidating for you? Well, it wasn't for me because Buzz had already been working in the prison. Mm, okay. Um, now, the first time I went into a prison, even before I did the show, I did a workshop, um, an art workshop with men at a, at a prison not too far from Ann Arbor. And Buzz had already been working with these men. So I had that advantage. But I will say that even for people who may not have that advantage, um, it's generally not frightening because the overall fact, the overall experience that people have is that the people inside are so grateful for you for coming in, so grateful to you for coming in. And they shake your hand and say, oh, it's so great that you're here. 
And it's just, you know, what's scary is the environment of prison. If, you know, when it's your, and I have to say this was frightening, walking into a prison and going through the gate, hearing the door slam, you know, walking around maybe through the yard. I mean, the whole environment can be frightening. Right. First mm -hmm. of all, when you come in to do a program, there's always some officer that escorts you to where you're going to be. So first of all, even if you don't know that you're going to be greeted with friendliness, you feel like, you know, you're with you're with somebody. And then mm -hmm. you you just more than likely what's going to happen is people will be very quiet. And, you know, this is such an unusual experience for them that they want every moment of your time and they're so appreciative. So that's generally what takes people off guard who go in for the first time. When I uh, was part of this Toastmasters group, we actually, you know, we were going in inside the prison, not just in the visiting areas. I'm, I imagine you are, too, in some situations. Oh, yes. Yeah. And um, and I remember, you know, once getting to know the guys and, and getting accustomed to it, feeling actually very secure mm -hmm. in the room with the guys, because if something had gone down, we'd be the first people they'd protect. Absolutely. Absolutely. And you, you just, you know, that. Yeah. Too. Yeah. You get that feeling. Absolutely. And that's yeah. something that a lot of people don't know who haven't been in a prison. Right. Right. Before. Yeah. 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 Um, why is it that some prisons you're not able to actually meet with the artists that you have to select the work without actually meeting and interacting with the artists? That primarily was true at the highest level of security. Okay. We actually have broken through that and uh -huh. we now actually can meet with all of them. But for a while, when we would go up to um, Marquette, which is a big, um, high security prison in the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. We were allowed to meet with artists who were at level two, but not at level five, which is very high security. Um, they have very strict rules for people who are at high security. They're usually locked down 23 hours a day, only allowed to exercise in a small yard for an hour a day. Um, so that that's why we weren't allowed to meet with those artists. Generally, we have been allowed to meet with um, people at lower security levels. But now we had a fabulous administrator who was a great schmoozer, <laughs> great at, at working with people and with the prison staff. And, and he got us into all of the prisons. Oh, fantastic. Yeah. Yeah, because yeah. that one-to-one -one contact must be so meaningful to the artists. It is. It's incredibly meaningful. And the, the visits that we do are kind of the heart of the project. And people often wonder, why is so much of this work so good? You know, what what's going on? <laughs> and I really attribute that. Um, mostly to the fact that we 
do meet with artists individually and in groups. Um, we try our best in a sh relatively short period of time to talk with each person and as artists ourselves, really validate what they're doing and to have a conversation that points towards the future to help them see what they can develop. We're, we're acting at, in a role as a teacher in a way, even though we're not instructing a class, we're actually, you know, we might say something like, you know, you've been working in black and white all these years, and, and I love that. I mean, you're just doing incredible things with pen and ink. Um, do you want to continue that? Do you want to try color, et cetera? We would never say something like, I think you should work in color mm. because we don't want to impose. Right. <clears throat> but we do yeah, want to, right. we do want to help them figure out what's next and, and make whatever suggestions are indicated that would be uh, helpful to them. Um, I know once Buzz was great at talking to people. I know an artist who was doing really nice black and white drawings, mostly of celebrities and landscapes and people. And one time Buzz did make a rather direct um, suggestion. He said, what do you think about um, doing some work that has some social content, you know, makes a social commentary? And then he started doing really fabulous work about that was based on articles in the newspaper. Um, mm. And... So we really do, in various ways, try to deepen their work. So these meetings that we have um, are, are very, very significant. So, Janie, if somebody um, <clears throat> wants to, would want to buy some of this artwork, is there a way for them to do it if they're not in Michigan and can't come to the yes, show? Yes, actually. We have a website. Um, it's the Prison Creative Arts Project website so if you could just if you just google uh prison creative arts project and then under exhibitions we've started <clears throat> only recently archiving all of the work in each show so starting with the 25th you can go 25th 26th 27th so far you can click and go into the um you can click and go into the that collection and when the show is up, which is in March, you can you can go in there and buy work. Okay. I'm actually not sure if you can buy work at this point. That's something I actually don't know, but okay. could be found out from calling the number on the website okay. or email. But definitely when the show is up, it's it is tailored <clears throat> so that people who aren't in Michigan can buy work. Because what happens is people buy work and then we mail it to them right. after the show is over. Mm -hmm. Right. And where is the work actually displayed? Uh, there's a gallery at the University of Michigan where we display the work. It's on North Campus and it's at the Duderstadt Center Gallery. It's the Duderstadt Gallery is a big complex of various kinds of resources for students, and it includes a gallery. And that's where we have the show every year. Okay. I'd, I'd like to 
I like to point out something. You know, we we think of it, men in prison, but there's a lot of women in prison. Yes. Too. Oh yes. And what what I found was extraordinary was this one woman with the, the crochet things that she did. Yes. I mean, she 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 said, I never dreamed. I read her story. She said, I never dreamed of being able to crochet, and then she got started and she couldn't stop. <laughs> And she made this magnificent dress, uh, mm-hmm. wedding dress. Oh, gosh, I was just, you know, and, and I'm sure that they, you know, there's women that would love to be able to do something with uh, with art. And so I'm, I'm hoping that more of them get interested, too. Yes. Well, we've been increasing the number of women involved in the show here in Michigan. We have one women's prison. And at the moment, we have 24 men's prisons. Wow. Oh, boy. (laughs) There are a lot more men in prison. Therefore, there are a lot more men in the show. But the the women who have been in the show have been just actively recruiting um, women to make art and to come to our selection visits. So that's been wonderful. And the young woman you mentioned, Samantha, um, is just a incredibly positive person, though she has a life sentence. and she's been very encouraging to other women to join in. And just about her, it's just really interesting. She, some of the older women, when she first came in, kind of took her under their wing. And they one woman said, I'd like to teach you how to crochet. And she said, oh, she kind of poo-pooed it. Like, why would I want to make little teddy bears? And, you know, I don't, I'm not interested. But she, she did. She, um, when I said little teddy bears, what I meant was really like um, more like uh, clothing. But eventually people do make, think, you know, 3D things like teddy bears. Anyway, she got into it. And as you said, she loved it. And then she started being so creative with it. And she said that, oh, yes. you know, she was actually good in math in high school. And she used some of her math skills to figure out. So she gave up doing pat using patterns, and she just made up her own her own work, which is really incredible. It is. Oh, it, I know. I just couldn't believe that that was really that someone really did that. Now, in this book, in making art in prison, you um, you have a lot of different things that you're talking about. So there's the um, history of incarceration in the United mm-hmm. States. There's what it's like to be in prison mm-hmm. now. And then there's profiles of the individual artists. There's mm-hmm. a lot of pictures of the artwork. Can you just sort of describe the overall structure of the book and how you decided on that structure? That's a great question, because the structure took a long time to figure out. I bet. One, one of the things that I arrived at in a kind of say initial way that deepened later was that I had several strands going at the same time. And you just almost named all of them. There's the historical political. How did we come to be such an incarcerated country? Second, there's the um, aesthetic view. You know, the la- towards the end of the book, there's a section called Aesthetic Studies. So I'm actually looking at the nitty-gritty how, as a visual artist myself, 
why does something like texture gain significance in prison? Why is scale so important? You know, looking at how individuals' perceptual phenomenon gains significance. And then there's the philosophical. So the philosophical being sort of what I end up with in the book, which is the creation of meaning and how we all deal with three basic questions. Who am I? What do I do? And how do I create meaning? And I point to different stories that the artists tell to see which question they start with and how ultimately meaning is created. So I figured out there were these, there was the political, historical, the aesthetic, and the philosophical. Um, <clears throat> I also knew that I wanted the artist's voices very much. So I started off doing traveling around the state with the permission of the department to interview people. And what happened after that was that I continued to correspond with some of the artists um, and ask them questions and they would answer. And so I am, a, you know, since I'm a visual artist, I'm used to working on a big wall in my studio. So I put up a lot of the images that I thought were some of the best and provocative. Then I put up those three categories and then I um, took strands of the conversations I was having with the artists and I, it was like a big puzzle, you know, <laughs> to try to fit those together. Um, so that's how it started and Let's see what happened next. Um, I knew from the beginning that I wanted something that was going to be about how you become an artist in prison. And I knew and I knew from the beginning that I was going to have a chapter called something like why it matters, which is really kind of the philosophical question. But it took a while to of just moving things around. And and working in the specifics that I got from artists with my own reflections um, to figure out how to structure it. And that's one of the things that took so long. Now, how many different artists are you profiling in okay. their stories? Well, there are 16 artist stories in okay. the book, and these are all in first person. And they're yeah. written and presented sort of like as essays that they wrote. Yes. But that's not how... I mean, it sounds like it's really from conversations then that you write. Yeah. yeah, good question. They came to me in different ways. For the artists who <clears throat> I did interviews with, that's exactly what happened. You can't record in a prison, or we can't hear anyway. So the interviews were me sitting there with a pen and a yellow legal pad and scribbling notes and saying, can you just hold on a minute? I've got to write that down. <laughs> then I would, pretty soon after the interview, sometimes I would be out of town. I'd be in a motel or a hotel and I'd go back and I'd type up those notes exactly as they occurred. And then I would start, when I got home, I would start putting them more in order because people don't talk in no, sequence. No. So, um, right. So that's how some of those stories came to be. And a, f a few of the, a few of them were actually written to me in letters. Um, 
which, you know, and I just had to edit pretty slightly, actually. Um, so both both ways. Yeah. You're listening to Writer's Voices. Our guest today is Janie Paul, author of Making Art in Prison, Survival and Resistance, which is available from Hat and Beard Press. And on their website, there's a really nice page that shows, you know, a lot of um, a lot of the photographs from the book, you know, or yeah, a small fraction of the total, but it, it really shows a lot and tells a lot about the book as well. The stories, the artist's stories are just so interesting to read. Yes, they are. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> How did you, I'm sure you talked to more than 16 people. How did I did. You, how did I you did. decide which ones to include? <clears throat> well, basically came down to which stories really had a comp something compelling about them mm. um where there was a there was a kind of a storyline um i know it was difficult actually because there were like there was one story that was very long um but it it, it didn't have as much compelling material, mm. but that's all I can say. I mean, all of them mm -hmm. were compelling, but <clears throat> um, I had to, obviously I couldn't do, I mean, I interviewed about 32 people, so I couldn't do all of those. Um, I also wanted a diversity in terms of gender and race, and, you know, so I considered all of those things, humor, seriousness, so, you know, in a way, it was like curating, you know, putting together a group that sort of um, where you get a variety of voices. And how many different artists work are you showing in the book? Uh, Ninety four. Wow. Yeah. Yeah. I was just going to say there's a lot of, you know, that that's the great thing that, that, you know, that you have pictures that they don't, uh, you know, I wanted to tell you the one that really moved me was. The picture of the young man on his, at his mother's grave. Oh yes. Um, yeah. Because, um, yeah. yeah, right. Yeah, because she had, you know, been waiting for him to get out of prison, and and unfortunately she died before he was able to do that. So that must have been a really, and that that picture this is is heartbreaking. It really is. It is heartbreaking. It's very very powerful, and he he's the same artist whose painting is on the cover of the book. Raphael mm -hmm. yes. yes. Yeah. yeah. And um, that's a, a, a sad and frustrating story. He's a, obviously a really wonderful artist, and you can tell from his work that he's got a great deal of warmth to him. Um, his family is all in the Bronx in New York, but the only way he could get out from a long sentence was to be deported to the Dominican Republic. And he can't come back here. So, um, yeah, it's this is another one of the things that's quite cruel about our system. I mean, he was someone who, when he was very young, committed uh, a drug-related crime, and it was the only time he'd ever committed a crime. 
It was basically a very, you know, he was trying to make some money. And he got an incredibly long sentence. Um, and uh, his sister worked tirelessly to get him out. And that was the way he was able to, to come out. I can say that he's been he's very successful now and he's still making art. So uh, I was going to ask how often does it happen that these artists that you've encouraged in prison were uh, are able to get out and become working artists in the world? Well, I'd say few, definitely, because um, when people get out of prison, they face so many challenges that are so time consuming to to meet. Uh, getting a job, get, first getting all your paperwork, getting having a place to live, getting a job, um, you know, getting a car. If you have a job, how do you get there? Um, reestablishing bonds with family and friends. It's in, so it's very time consuming. However, people do. I know quite a few people that do continue to make their art. Most of them still have jobs that they're working at and making art, but there are a few who are actually now making a living as an artist. I can think of at the moment two in particular, one in Detroit and one in Grand Rapids. Well, one thing you write about in the book, and this is something I have some personal experience with, too, is uh, prison tattoos, which are illegal in prison and yet very prevalent. And mm -hmm. the artists who do those, it seems like that might be something that they could segue into as a job Absolutely. outside of prison. Absolutely. Yeah. I know a few artists who have set up tattoo studios outside and have yeah. been quite successful. Yeah. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yeah. Janie, would you care to read a little bit from Making Art in Prison? Sure. I thought I'd read a passage of my text and then a little bit of one of the stories. That sounds um, good. Okay. This is from the chapter called Why It Matters, which is sort of in the early part of the book. <clears throat> in solitary confinement or in level five, a person may only be allowed a pen or a piece of paper, but have all the choices they can conjure up in their imaginations. This freedom to choose is incredibly significant in a world where so much is determined by others. Perhaps the most important choice is the claiming of oneself as a subject rather than as an object, as a person who acts on, not a person who is acted upon. In the United States, incarcerated people have become a huge mass of people as objects to be moved around, confined, and profited from. The great struggle for an individual who is imprisoned is to reverse this subject-object relationship, even if it is only in the mind. As the art object comes into being, its qualities speak back to the artist, suggesting the next move, presenting new possibilities. This back-and-forth process, which continues until the piece is finished, is welcome interactivity in a system designed to eliminate sharing and choice. 
I'm just going to skip down the page a little bit now. <clears throat> you get sustenance from the smallest things, a leaf that blows into the yard, birds, squirrels, pet mice. But you must also shore up your inner resources. You have to look inside yourself for experiences that have shape and meaning. One man told me, there's no middle ground here. You're either moving forward or going back. Becoming an artist is one of the best ways to find a path forward because it is a way to create an internal private space for growth and freedom. The urge to create meaning, to have a sense of order and form, to exert control and to discover new parts of oneself, of oneself drives people to produce a momentary yet solid world of the imagination. Fitting together marks, colors, forms, stories, and images offers a sense of understanding, of worth and value, of things being right, which is, of course, rare in prison. Artists may use carefully honed techniques and rituals, or they may work in a flash of intuition. For all of them, it is the single experience they have of being fully themselves. Incarcerated people make their art in small, crowded spaces, often with other people around. They must learn to cultivate an intense relationship with their work to sustain the feeling of being in an intimate relationship to something that matters. Once an artist makes the first mark or makes the first move on a piece of wood or soap or plaster, they engage in an ongoing interaction with the art object. Responses to the physical result of these interactions can be a range of feelings such as joy, anger, boredom, curiosity, frustration, or contentment. This process affords a continuous range of emotional states that are entirely private, sometimes conscious, sometimes unconscious, flowing in and around the artist. This is intensely satisfying. The art object begins as the recipient of the artist's actions and gradually takes on a separate identity that eventually says, I'm done. This vital back and forth of action and response is a way of being in true and intimate relationship, something that is rare among humans living in prison. If the project of being a person is to evolve into more humanness, to open up increasingly more inner resources, more knowledge, more experience, than it is to look toward the future. In John Berger's novel, A Painter of Our Time, Jan Janos, the painter says, there is something even more fundamental than sex or work, the great universal human need to look forward, take the future away from a man, and you have done something worse than killing him. To see only more and more of the same institutionalized life as you head into the future is agonizing. This is the ultimate punishment for prisoners, particularly those serving long or life sentences. And so prison artists developed a practice in, one, in which one work of art leads to another, pointing them towards a path of endlessly unfolding possibilities and an enduring, if momentary, feeling of being grounded in the world. 
This is Oliver Mirko's story. 2010 was the lowest point in my life because I couldn't talk to my nine-year-old daughter and the world caved in, caved in around me and I thought, what am I gonna do? I saw Vargas and Montney, those are two artists, and asked them for help. I was at IMAX with them for two years. I had some drawing skills from my childhood, but these guys, they really, really helped me. They told me to let go. Montney said to go really dark and really light, to have a strong value range. Vargas held my hand on his paintbrush to paint on his painting. It was skin tones, and that's how I started painting. And within a month, I lost my fears of being a failure. I did about 20 or 30 pastels. Vargas showed me books. I used photographs. I used water-soluble oils, and both Vargas and Montney taught me color theory. They are selfless. They watched me and said, keep going, keep going. That's amazing. I grew up in Albania and came to the United States at 18 in 2000. I came alone, and then my parents came for political asylum. I always admired Caravaggio and the Impressionists, and I've always loved Bonard. After 1992, Albania opened up and we were able to look at art books. My father was a music conductor and teacher, so he knows about art and sends me books. I have about 50 books, which they let me have here because they know I'm serious. My hometown was Pogradis on the border of Macedonia. My uncles were fishermen, and since Lake Orid was only about 50 yards from my house, I often spent time helping them with their work throughout the year. During the summer, there was a stretch of road, sidewalks, and benches we used to call Shiro. I'm not sure how to pronounce that. <laughs> where people would dress nicely and go roam about when it cooled off in the evening, strolling up and down the promenade. It's the place I miss the most. I'm in a four-man cube. The staff gives us artists latitude because they see we're positive. In my cube, we share and accommodate around the common table. Violent people steer clear of the artists. The artists in here, we influence each other. I love the competition, the connection, like Matisse and Picasso going back and forth. I'm going to skip ahead a little bit. When I came into prison, I was angry. I thought that I wasn't treated fairly because I didn't shoot the gun. My friend did. I was justifying myself. As years went by, I realized I could have stopped it, but I was a prisoner of my ego. I realized I was guilty, but now I'm free. I have nothing to prove, no ego. I realized the smallest conflict can result in a violent situation. It takes two to escalate, so you can just walk away. A guy here got his TV stolen and got angry and wanted to get into a fight, and I said, don't go after him, just read a book. I stay out of all that. People leave me alone. I just think about art. I've changed so much as a person. I was totally hopeless, drifting with no direction. It's ironic they had, that I had to make a bad decision and come to prison to change for the better. I have parolable life. It really shakes you up to get that sentence. I started thinking more in depth, analyzing myself, becoming better. And when I discovered art, everything opened up. Now I paint for three or four hours a day and don't want to stop, even if it's chow time. And I don't want to go, but I have to go. Through art, I started centering myself. It's a real second life. 
more than an escape. In The Idiot by Fyodor Dostoevsky, the character is condemned to death, and in the last few moments of his life, he reveled in every detail of life as if it was eternity. And now time has changed for me because of art. Before I became an artist, every day was routine. And now even though in prison, you usually want the days to pass quickly. Now I sometimes wish the day was longer when I'm painting. It's like I don't belong in time anymore. Thank you. That was Janie Paul reading from Making Art in Prison. One thing that seems to be um, almost a repeating theme in these stories is artists helping one another. Yes, that's really important. And it's something that I really want people to know. Because I don't think most people think of our of incarcerated people as being very generous. And there's a tremendous amount of generosity. A lot of people who become pretty experienced artists want to help others. And it's really the main way that people learn in prison. They sort of apprentice themselves to someone else. And, um, you know, small communities form. Some guys like a group of guys will go out into the yard and bring their work and they'll talk about it and they'll help the younger ones. And um, it's, it's very significant. One thing that surprised me was when you went in to talk to these, the people for the book and you would bring in photographs of the work that they had sent out before and they had not been able to have those photographs before. Right. Right. And, and why is that? Well, it varies, actually, from prison to prison. But um, at many places, they can't use a camera. They can't photograph their work. They're not allowed to. Some places, there'll be a staff member who will photograph some work for them. But, of course, you know, people in prison don't own cameras. Right. So, um you know, that's a high security risk. Yeah. I mean, security, you know, when you right. go to a prison, you have to leave your phone, phone and, yeah. you know, in the in the car. There's, you know, that's a big security uh, rule. Are you able to send picture, photographs in to them <clears throat> or not? The way there's been a recent rule here that you can't send anything in that has color. Oh. <laughs> you can send black and white. Color. But there it's another security risk. Apparently, you could put something in the, the docs. I don't know. <laughs> but um, oh my there is another oh way to do it, which is there's an email system for incarcerated people that's nationwide called JPay. Right. And that's how I communicate mostly with people inside. It only takes a, mostly a day to for somebody to receive a JPay message. And you can attach images to a JPay message. Oh, okay. I didn't know that. I use um, CoreLinks, I think, is the one that we use in Iowa. for, And I don't know if you can attach things to it or not. But um, one of the other things, just, you know, this is kind of an aside, but it's also about how we treat incarcerated individuals, how much it costs to do everything for people who have no money whatsoever. So, for example, for me to send 
money to put on the prison account, I either have to go take my time, go get a money order and send it in that way. Or if I want to send it digitally, which, you know, I can do for anything else, it costs a lot of money. It costs, it does. It costs like 10 bucks, $10 yeah. to send money and to transfer money. And somebody's making a huge profit off of that. Oh, absolutely. Yeah. There's so many people who are profiting off of prisons. Yeah. All the, the telephone companies. The oh, yeah. Companies, yeah. I mean, everyone's making money. So many corporations are making money off of prisons. The collect calls from prisons are oh. for prisoners are very expensive. Very. Probably ten to twenty times what it would cost someone out here to to make a call, or more. Yes. yes. And it's like, how how is this? How can we feel justified as a, as a society taking advantage of the people who are the have the least privilege and the least resources and it's not just the people in prison it's their families that suffer and shouldn't we as a society want to encourage strong family bonds to remain to continue so that when these people get out of prison they have the family to go back to they've maintained the bonds instead we make it as difficult and as expensive as possible for people to stay in touch with their families. That's an extremely important point. I couldn't agree more. It's it's it doesn't make any is sense. That, but the problem is that, is, is that why they yeah is that why ahead. so many people end up going back into prison after they've been released? It's certainly because, part of it. Yeah, it is certainly part of it. Yeah. Um, they're not prisons oh, are not really set up to. I mean, just to to give people all the support that that could be possible to keep them out of prison. I mean, there are many programs, you know, that go on about, you know, how to readjust, et cetera. But these factors that you're mentioning, you know, if you're from Detroit and you're suddenly moved up to the UP, which is a 12-hour drive, that's the Upper Peninsula of Michigan. Right, right. Um, then their family can't afford to go up there. Yeah. That's another way that it happens. Yeah. Um, you know, it, it things are very, very, very limited that way. The the phone companies and all the other services. Now, I just want to bring up something in relation to this, which is that people often start making art by doing very commercial work, either tattoos, portraits, or um, greeting cards. Greeting cards. And then they sell them. And I know artists who have told me that the sale of these things is what kept them able to buy their own hygiene products, yeah. their own stamps. People have to pay their own money to buy their hygienic products. Yeah. And um, also their own, TV, their own everything. I mean, only if you prove that you're absolutely indigent, then you get a little bar of soap and I don't know what else. But and so, even in some cases, oh. food, I um, I have a nonprofit called the Iowa Justice Project. And right now, oh. mostly what I do is support um, a couple of inmates with dietary, special dietary needs. One's diabetic and the other one has um, just really needs supplements and healthier food. 
because the prison food is not healthy. It's not suitable for diabetics whatsoever, and yet diabetes is prevalent in the prisons. And um, so, and they so they have to buy it, buy vegetables, fresh vegetables through the commissary, things like that. Yeah. Well, yeah. good for you for doing yeah. that. Yeah. It's just a small thing, but you know. That's so it's not a small thing. It's a wonderful thing. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So, um, yeah. There, but there's so many other areas that that could use people helping and and trying to make a difference. Well, I'll tell you, there's a big conflict between people like you and me and other people who are trying to make a difference to in the lives of incarcerated people and the corporations that are profiting from yes. having more and more people in prison. Yes. So the incentive to make life better for people isn't there among that group of people because yeah. the more pr- people are in prison, the more money they're making. Yeah. Yep. So it's a real yep. struggle. Yep. And but you know what? There's progress. When when we first doing the started doing this project in nineteen ninety six, no one in the public dial in the public forum was speaking about this. The idea that politicians would be talking about criminal justice reform on television or that you know, was just unheard of. And now this is being talked about, you know, very, very widely. It's that's so true, and we may we grown. we may see some real change in our lifetime. We can hope, we can hope. So, Janie, we're yes. we're out of time, and it's been a great conversation. Oh, Obviously, gosh. we could talk so much longer. Just one real quick question: Were are you able to? Are these artists able to get copies of the book? Of that book? is something I am currently working on, and I actually don't know the answer. Okay. Um, some. People have told me that they can't get hardcover books, and some told me have told me they can. And I am about to reach out and, you know, to some people in positions of authority to to find out. But we're committed. If if they can't get hardcover books, we'll do it another edition with soft cover. So Good. we're that we may be encountering some challenges, but I'm hoping. Yeah, I hope so too. Caroline, do you have some closing words for us? Yes, I do. This actually came from the from one of the artists. One of the biggest gifts that art gives some of these people is the great and lasting friendships that they could not have made any other way in prison. Wow. That's a great thing to end on. <laughs> that very, is. Very good observation, <laughs> very positive. Well, thank you, Janie, and see you all next week on Writer's Voices. Thank you so much.